Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I'm the managing editor here at EAA for print and digital content and publications, and I'm one of your hosts. And sitting there across the table, socially distant and ready to go, uh, on the mic again is our producer, Christina Baskin. Terrific. And Christina, what's your job title here? I'm our multimedia journalist. I know that. But anyway, just making sure. (laughs) And uh, Christina, we've got a guest joining us remotely, uh, somebody that you've uh, recently written uh, written a story involving. So why don't you uh, tell us who our guest is? Yes, it's my pleasure to welcome Philip Steinbach to the show. Um, Philip is the CEO and co-founder of Game Composites, located in Bentonville, Arkansas. Well, Philip, uh, welcome. We're sure glad to have you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. So... uh, Philip, before we get into talking a bit about uh, the company and, uh, and and the Game Bird airplane, um, I always like to get to know uh, a little bit about uh, our guests and visitors and things like that and uh, understand your aviation background. How did you first get in contact with aviation? Was it something you were interested in as a kid, anybody in your family, that sort of thing? Yeah, as a kid. I mean, I started playing with model airplanes when I was five, six years old. At that time, I was living in Germany and grew up in the northern part of the Black Forest, which is the, at that time, was the entrance point for a low-flying area for military jets. So we got those things coming through our garden at 100 feet or less frequently, and that uh, deviated my attention from tractors and farm equipment <laughs> to airplanes. Very nice. Uh, that's the uh, Schwarzwald, yes? Yeah, exactly. Uh, beautiful area it is and that's the extent of my german so i will stop trying to impress anybody well that was over my head so i'm impressed <laughs> well good that's one philip why don't you tell us a little bit about game composites uh how you met Stuart, um the other co-founder and how it became essentially what it is today so Stuart and i met about 10 years ago in england um i was running another airplane company at the time and trying to sell airplanes managed to sell him one then shortly after another one and uh, when he took the delivery of the first airplane, he actually asked me to deliver it to Arkansas. That is nine years ago, meanwhile. And uh, so we got to know each other, became friends. And that was also my first time that I came here. Um, quite liked what I saw, really, because it's a great place to fly, a great place to live, great weather most of the time. And so then a year later, two years later, I decided to leave Extreme Air for various reasons. And originally, the the plan was that um, we relocate Extreme Air from Germany to England and build up an aerobatic center there with Gerald Cooper at the time, who is multiple times a UK national champion. Um, we started negotiating the purchase price for Extreme Air that didn't go didn't go very well, and uh, Stuart thought that you know for from all the people that I was thinking about who to approach for a pro- for a program like this or for a project like this. Um, he was the, yeah, basically the first I called and also the one that came up with the best idea. And now we are two partners in a business, which is way better than a bunch of them. And so we decided instead of taking over Extreme Air to restart the business from scratch, do a new product, new company set up, everything. And I have zero regrets of this. It's been a very interesting time, to say the least. Um, we started in, a, in an office container in Lincolnshire, which is 
about the size of the little office I'm sitting in right now, uh, progressed into a disused fuel station to build the prototype, which was, you know, from the outside really didn't look like much, but we managed to build the first airplane in there and uh, complete the type certification. And after this, um, moved to Arkansas in a facility that I was um, able to plan with an architect and got built while we were still working in England. Uh, then we started hiring in May 2017. And, at the, and now, we got since yesterday, we got 29 airplanes completed and flying. We are uh, 60 people right now. And um, yeah, got more on order, so we're really, really busy, which is a very good problem to have. And the company yeah, feels better and better every day. I, I enjoy getting up in the morning and getting to work every day, which is probably as much as anybody can ever wish for. That's that's terrific. And, and just for our listeners who may not have uh, read the story in uh, Sport Aviation Magazine, uh, Stuart, your partner, is uh, Stuart Walton, and uh, he is, uh, among other things, a, a longtime supporter of EA and does serve on our board of directors. So we're, uh, we're very happy to, uh, to have that, uh, that connection to Stuart and, uh, and through him to you. Yeah, I'm very happy about that, too, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Philip. Tell us kind of the mission behind Game Composites when you and Stuart first started to get the ball rolling and uh, talk to us about how you eventually uh, started coming up with designs for what is now the Gamebird. So uh, both Stuart and I, when we met, flew aerobatics in competitions. Stuart had a pits at that time and then uh, bought an XA-41 and then an XA-42. I started the design of the XA-41 back in 2003. Um, we made about, yeah, we made a few of those before we realized we needed to see it. That's how the, the XA-42 was born eventually. That airplane initially was uh, marketed as Extreme 3000 and then Esbach and then XA-41 and XA-42. So there's almost as many names as airplanes. Um, I do that sport since, also since 2003. Um, I've competed in a limited for a number of years and um, have great memories of, and you know, of course, I still, I would still like it, but the business is, has taken priority, of course, now. But this is how, how we met to, to begin with. Then when we decided to go into a business together, uh, that was not so much based on the excitement for the airplanes, more then on the actual business case that is to be made for an aerobatic airplane and the opportunity, the, the actual opportunity to build a business, an aerospace business uh, on a budget. And that may seem a little bit out of place in his context, but one of my main things that I said early on when we talked about starting game composites together was that I want to prove that old saying wrong that you need a big fortune in, to make a small fortune in aviation. And um, this, is, this is one of the, you know, probably one of the worst things that happened in the last 30, 40 years uh, that almost very, that in, from what I can see, at least since I read aviation magazines and the sport aviation, of course, that fewer and fewer projects actually get completed. And so this seems to be that an airbag airplane to me is a, is a project that is still a lot of work. Um, because you need to answer all the same questions that, you know, or almost as many questions as a Boeing needs to answer. But it is at a scale where you can 
successfully build a business at a, at a healthy growth rate and um, learn everything that you need to learn to organ about organization, about certification, and so on and so forth to be prepared f to take on bigger steps from there. And both our ambitions from the start were that we found game, game composites to build the game bird. That was the mission. I had some kind of experience from flying and um, the, my previous jobs doing this. Um, but both of our ambitions are actually going a little further than this. But of course, you have to take the first step before the second. And that's why we started out with two people in the container, then we're four people in the container, and then six people in a little shop up to the stage where we are today. And uh, that's still, I think, the way to, to do it healthy and survivable and remain at some sort of sanity. Whereas if you look at people who try to take, to buy too much of the cake at once, like start you know, from on a green field, try to build a jet, there is not a single successful example in history where some, something like this ever worked. And I'm not saying we want to build a jet, but um, the Gamebird has been a very rewarding and exciting experience so far. It's been a, um, a steep, steep learning curve for me, um, moving from Germany to England and then to, to the US. There's cultural differences, there's businesses, uh, differences, significant differences in how to run a business. Um, but um, after four years in the US, again, no regrets, and I'm looking forward to whatever the future might bring. That's great to hear. So uh, it's interesting to me, you pointed out you uh, you had the, the business case and everything laid out. Uh, so you started with a business plan and then worked on designing an airplane. Uh, I'm trying to think how to best phrase this question, but the, you know, the Game Bird the, is a clean sheet design. What's the first thing you do? I mean, if you are figuratively or literally looking at sort of a blank piece of paper and saying, I'm going to build, uh, you know, sort of the next great uh, aerobatic airplane and, and, and certainly enhance some other features. Where do you start? What is, what does your first day look like? First day looks like, okay, well, how many people are we putting in it? So, and so it's, you know, probably not four because it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's too many sick bags you need to carry. Uh, one doesn't sell enough, so uh, kind of obvious choices too. Then how do you place them side by side or tandem? And then that's you know, tandem in case you want to roll as fast as this thing does, otherwise your head bangs through the window all the time. And then the next question is what engine you pick. There really is only one choice nowadays on the market, which is the 580. I know that there have been uh, various two-seat, four-cylinder airplanes but uh, if somebody asks me why a six-cylinder, the uh, standard answer is you can always throttle back. You can never get more ponies than you built in, into the airplane in the first place. So um, that's basically the start. And that also gives you about 50% of the flying mass already. And then you design, try to design the prettiest and most useful bag to carry two people and an engine around. That's pretty much the job of an airframe manufacturer. So when we met in Arkansas, you mentioned that aerobatic airplanes had long been built for power and not necessarily ease of handling. And your goal was to essentially do both, which is fantastic. Um, can you tell us about your background and experience in aerobatics and what things you kind of took away from the industry as you were designing this? So, I mean, I've always been interested in airplanes. 
uh, like I said earlier on, and um, there's really nothing to invent in subsonic aviation anymore. Everything has been done. So the big advantage I think that we had with the Gamebird was that uh, we had some experience, plus we had the budget to see it through. And this way, we and, and we took time. So we could actually sit down, compare existing designs, uh, look at available technologies, um, look at what we actually want, what the customers want, not what we want, um, and formulate this into a, into a job description for an airplane. And or basically, you can, I mean, this is a little bit too simplified, but you could take components from airplanes from the last 80 years and they would all, they must almost make a game bird altogether already because there's, like I said, there's everything has been done and everything has been tested and we just took things that I found useful for this application and put them together. And that goes in construction, that goes into design certification, uh, the, you know, airfoil selection, aerodynamics, pretty much everything is uh, already proven technology there's so uh, we haven't like broken any ground there because that's another uh, kind of golden rule in particular even worse in small aviation if you try to do, if you try to do too many things at the same time it's not going to be a business so you know there's this thing new engine and new airframe is always going to be a disaster and in a proven airplane a proven airframe with a with a new engine could be a disaster the easiest part to do is what we did. We built a new airframe for an existing engine. And um, it, that's still enough work. Um, you've probably seen that when you were here. Uh, everybody in the building is fairly busy. Um, but it it seemed to be the most feasible way to do this. And that's also where my you know composite and design background comes comes in handy. I couldn't design an engine, for example. So one aspect that I found to be interesting to the build is that it is designed to stall abruptly, but also regain airflow equally as fast. Talk to us about how you achieve that in the design and build of the airplane. So that's something which actually mostly comes from model airplanes. Uh, if you look, if you watch a like a JC Ducia as a very popular example right now, flying an extreme flight crazy model, those things they literally corner. That's not even a radius anymore. And uh, this is mostly achieved through lightweight construction, um, also using composite even on models, but also airfoil selection. And conventional airfoils are more designed for benign stall characteristics and a, you know, kind of a shallow uh, lift drag curve even behind the stall to, you know, keep keep landing survivable. Whereas an aerobatic airplane is supposed to snap, it's supposed to spin supposed to recover from a snap very, very precisely and also recover from a spin as precise as possible. And that means you don't want any kind of hysteresis in the stall, meaning if you if you stall at 15 degrees, you want to unstall at 15 degrees and not at five. And um, there's certain criteria that you apply to an airfoil. There's programs out there that can do that. And that was part of the experience from playing with other airplanes prior to designing the game bird and the wing actually works pretty well on this airplane what it also does is it um, creates what the airplane has that's why if you walk around the game bird you will notice it doesn't have a stall warning you know the little flap on the leading edge which rips up your finger if you uh, try to wash it too quickly <laughs> and uh, this is because the airplane does have natural natural stall warning for once 
and also it has such a low power loading that you can pull even when it's fully loaded you can pull out of a stall without any kind of significant altitude loss or no altitude loss at all wow that's that's remarkable um you know something i've i've uh, i've wondered about with almost all competition aerobatic airplanes um that you would see see on the circuit and I'm, I'm not thinking of many exceptions if any um in your opinion, why are they all tail draggers? It's really mass and um, weight and aerodynamics. A tail dragger is lighter than a nose wheel, and the um, the center, the arrangement center of gravity and everything, of or the, the attempt to build the lightest possible airplane inevitably leads to a tail dragger. Let's put it like this. So the Gamebird is a rather robust piece of machinery. Um, it has to be able to withstand certain aerobatic maneuvers um, and. When we were doing the factory tour with you, you kind of picked up, for example, a rudder, and it was quite thick compared to like an average rudder that you would find in an aircraft. Talk to me about the design to make it as robust as it is. So composites don't like um, load concentrations. So the first thing you try to do when building something out of carbon fiber is to distribute the load over the largest possible area or surface. And uh, that means, I mean, that in, in terms of a wing, for example, it goes for any, any material, the thicker the wing, the stronger it's gonna be. And uh, the rudder is just like a small wing eventually, or essentially, and the, uh, the VA, so that the, the speed at which you can legally fully deflect the rudder is 175 knots at the game bird. And at 175 knots, you have around 1,000 pounds aerodynamic loads on the distributed over those three rudder hinges. And that means if you want to do that many, many times over the life of the airplane, then it's a good idea to give it enough structure to essentially keep it in place all the time. And uh, the rudder or an aileron or an elevator, whatever you pick up, it is about the weight of a Cessna 172 control surface, but if you try to apply the same loads to, uh, let's say, a training airplane, it'll just cease to exist. So that's where the actual um, composite engineering comes in, and you cannot, you know, in composites, it's a very different approach um, compared to a metal airplane or to a wooden airplane because the load paths just have to look different. The uh, the load introductions need to be different, and um, Basically, by applying what you know, glider people have done, what other composite manufacturers have done, uh, as, as basically as thorough as we possibly could during the design phase, we were able to produce an airframe that weighs about as much as the engine and the landing gear together. So the engine and landing gear make about 50% of the empty weight of the entire airplane. And now everything is done in-house at the factory in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yeah, ex except for the welded components, they're made in Austria currently. Um, but we're, right now we are expanding and we plan to bring that capability in-house within the next 6 to 12 months. And how many molds does it take to, to make one airplane? So it's around 330 composite parts that make one airplane. And then plus, of course, welding jigs and assembly um, fixtures, etc. So, but uh, the airplane is about... 1,100 individual components, counting nuts and bolts and everything. Wow. That's really, uh, really amazing. Now with the 330 molds, uh, all those, all that material to make, and then you said the welded fuselage or welded components coming in from uh, from Austria um, that you do hope to bring or do plan to bring in-house. 
how long does it uh, does it take? How often is a new game bird rolling out uh, your factory door? So right now it's about one every three to four weeks. We're trying to get up to two airplanes a month, but um, the the biggest uh, or well our main objective is quality, not speed. Luckily, we're in a position where we can afford this, and uh, right now we're focusing more on getting it right and getting everybody in the team trained up to deliver the best possible quality. And only when we're really happy with how everything works, then we're going to try to speed up and get try to get to two airplanes a month. Now, I'm not going to uh, you know ask you to divulge any company secrets or anything, but uh, it's been interesting for us to see how uh, general aviation activity has been in some ways impacted uh, certainly by the by the pandemic which is which has affected all of us around the world in so many different ways but in some ways general aviation activity has also flourished because it's it is a way to uh, you can be socially distant you can sort of be by yourself you can go and fly um, how has the pandemic uh, in, impacted you and and gain composites and that's one of the um, advantages of being in Arkansas. Uh, we never had to shut down a single day. The government here has taken some very moderate decisions. Um, I think part of it is that Arkansas is not very densely populated to begin with. Uh, there have been the outbreak itself has not been as severe as in other places. Then the weather has been very favorable. Last year, when it broke out in spring, um, it actually the curve was very very flat over most of the summer. And so we kept working through the entire time. We had never shut down a single day up to up to today, knock on wood. And um, we had only, I think, five or six cases in in our team. And everybody came out all right after a week or two with with no like uh, long lasting effects on, on, on anybody. So we've been really lucky here. And on the sales front, it's been slow for the first two, three months, while everybody was insecure about, you know, how this would pan out towards, you know, everybody and the individual. But then it actually picked up and um, having talked to other general aviation manufacturers or salespeople, uh, that seems to be an effect that goes across the board, in particular in the, uh, in the slightly faster airplane world. Um, simply because nobody wants to sit in an nobody that can afford it wants to sit in an airliner anymore. <laughs> and I think that's also a good thing for, let's say, used airplanes. You know, suddenly, it becomes a viable option again to have something that is thirty years old or even older, um, just as an alternative to an airline. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to fly with you while I was there, and I briefly was able to take over the controls. And one thing that surprised me was how light on the controls it was and how responsive it was. Talk to me about what it's like to, to fly one of these, because, I mean, you, you fly one of these almost almost every day, giving demos. It's fun. I mean, that's the, the, the bottom line. It's the, to me, it's the ultimate fun toy, fun airplane. Um, there's a lot of airplanes that have more ramp appeal or faster or slower or whatever you want. But that combination of uh, just strapping yourself to a, to a tiny plastic box with a big engine in the front and having all the agility you want is that to me is the, the you know, freedom of flight or the, the pure fun of it. And there's really nothing that the airplane couldn't do that a pilot can do. 
or the other way around, the pilot is the weak link. So that's that's one of the really, really nice features of these modern aerobatic airplanes that uh, the you can play with the airplane as long as you don't hit the planet, you'll be you're in good shape. <laughs> and uh, going somewhere is fun, but I mean, yeah, of course, you can sit in the back of it, uh, you know, in something faster with pressurization, etc. But then you don't see as much. And I did. I took the I took various game birds across, around the country in the meantime. I've obviously done a lot of flying in Europe, and uh, to me, VFR flying still is the you know the best way to see any place. I really enjoy it, and see it in something like this is even better. So it doesn't have enough space, enough places to to take the kids. But if I have if I go somewhere on my own, this is my preferred mode of transport. I was really surprised uh, when I read Christina's uh, story about the uh, the airplane uh, that how impressive it was in terms of range and endurance and things when you think about that's just not something you think about when you as you say when you think of a plastic box with a big engine on it uh, <laughs> meant for uh, meant for aerobatic maneuvers can you talk a little bit about range and endurance and just what those numbers are yeah, so um, two years ago, I flew one of the airplanes back from Idaho, um, from one of the customer's places there. And that was 1,150 miles. I did that nonstop in five hours and 10 minutes and had 45 minutes endurance left in the tanks when I landed in Bentville. And that was pretty much with no wind, some tailwind the first hour or so, and then a little bit of headwind coming out of the hills into the flats around Denver. So it's a pretty... it's. You know, that average is out just slightly above uh, 200 knots, true. Wow. Most of that was between 10 and 11,000 feet. Uh, the airplane carries 81 gallons of gas and up there drinks like 11 and a half gallons and does, like I said, a little bit more than 200 knots at that, uh, at, you know, at that power sitting in altitude, which again, for a little plastic box is not that bad. And uh, what, uh, what do you use or what do you get for a useful load after the tanks are full? So the airplane is around 1,400 pounds empty, 2,200 pounds is max takeoff weight, and 81 gallons. You need to help me out here because I'm not really into Let's say so. those units yet. How much? How many pounds are 81 gallons? Uh, 81 gallons is uh, 486 pounds. Okay, so it leaves room for two 200-pound people. Okay, great. Sort of. That was, uh, that was impressive. That was live math. That's not something we normally do on the show. We don't do math problems, but... <laughs> okay. Now you're ready for your next oral exam. Yes, I am, indeed. Who's, who's interviewing whom here? Who's testing whom? <laughs> no, we'll find out later. <laughs> so, so Philip, if a customer wanted to purchase through Game Composites, what can they, what can they expect? Uh, you mentioned to me at one point that you do offer proficiency in upset recovery training, um, when a customer comes to purchase a game bird? Yes, we include 10 hours of flight training with the purchase of every game bird for US customers, simply to keep insurance companies and customers and ourselves happy. Um, Christian Bolton of uh, Halcones Aerobatics team and Red Bull Airways fame has uh, started to work here in January. He has a, back, a five year background of working for flight safety as, a, as an upset recovery instructor. He has trained a lot of people on on uh, on this type of airplane and has trained a lot of people in formation aerobatics and he's um, now our main guy to to do that kind of stuff and we've got some very very good feedback from customers who worked with Christian and um, I like learning aerobatics or uh, formation flying from him as well 
So it's been it's been really good, and it yeah, diversifies the business some more. That's that's great. That's nice to hear that uh, that it's not just a matter of here's a check, give me the airplane, and sort of go on the way. That ten hours uh, must go a long way towards, as you said, making everybody feel more comfortable. Uh, and that does lead me to another question, and that is. Uh, if a pilot comes to you, um, maybe sort of an average uh, private pilot, maybe with a tailwheel endorsement, but hasn't flown something, uh, a tail dragger that's this high performance, you know, maybe it's more, you know, champs and cubs, maybe a decathlon or something like that. Like, do you have an idea of how long it t- typically takes somebody with that kind of average level of experience to get comfortable in the airplane? There is no real average. It really depends on the ability of the individual to learn new things. And I would say if somebody can fly a super decathlon, then it's really not much. You know, it's a handful of landings and a handful of hours. And the airplane is actually not hard to take off and land. I mean, takeoff is a four-second thing. There's almost no time to do anything wrong. <laughs> and on landing, the, the main difference to a Piper Cup, for example, is that it doesn't stall when it sits down. So the airplane sits at 9 degrees, it stalls at 16, which means you're 20, 25 knots above stall speed when you are to a three-point landing. That also means you're in full control, nothing gets mushy or anything. And during flight test, I've, and also here, um, I flew the airplane up to nearly 40 knots crosswind, which is absolutely no problem. Uh, you've got lots and lots of control authority left. And that's probably the only, I would say, challenge is the to deal, to, 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 well, to learn the control authority. That's really the thing. It's more... Initially, when you start flying the airplane, it's more like flying a helicopter with two fingertips and not like ham-fisting it because that's the less you do, the more the, the, the easier it is, essentially. That's interesting. And uh, for landing, so you mentioned doing doing three-point, that's interesting, that attitude being so much lower than than a stall attitude. Uh, do you uh, do you have any particular rules? Do you always three-point? Do you, do you three-point and then wheel land in crosswinds? Or w- what's your philosophy there? I mean, I know there's as many opinions as um, possibilities out there, so I don't really have a strong opinion on either one. Personally, I always three-point. Um, it's just a habit, and not because I, I, I think it's the best way. It's just how, you know, what I've been told, what works for me since a number of years now. And But if somebody wants to wheel land, please wheel land. Um, if you pay for your brakes yourself, you know, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> or if you are on a long long runway, um, again, this is this is not an airplane where you need that you have to wheel land because you have a bit of crosswind because there is always all always enough control to keep the thing on the runway. There's really no excuse not to. And then recently we de- de- uh, delivered an airplane to Europe, and uh, the owner is one of the most prolific tailwheel pilots I would say in Europe or even worldwide. It's, has a huge, huge Warbird collection. And he said it's the easiest taxiing airplane that he's ever flown, tail dragger at least. And so we put some work into this and then combined with a big rudder and some reasonable sized visibility, reasonably good visibility considering the basic configuration, it's really not a hard airplane to operate. And, um, you know, back to your question about the, the type of person that we sell airplanes to, I think there is a bit of a shift in, in customer focus right now, for at least for game composites, but I think for other people too. The, the pure, you know, this is not a pure aerobatic airplane anymore. This is, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it's almost the series of aerobatic airplanes. You get, you know, a lot of 
uh, nice things inside. You got avionics, you got good seats and um, nice paint and everything. It's not a, a cheap toy anymore. You know, it's, we're far away from $30,000 pits. And this is by no means this being disrespectful to the pits. But uh, if somebody would manage to build a $30,000 airplane nowadays, I would be very, very interested how that is supposed to work. And uh, to make a business work, I think the, the minimum you can you have to do is what we actually do. Um, so that comes with a price tag. And that, unfortunately, you know, it's kind of restricts access to these airplanes to people with a big enough checkbook. Um, but to get to those guys, you know, that I mean, I've, I've started flying competition aerobatics in my when I was 30. And um, I don't know a lot of people who have done that level of sports when they were much younger outside of France, which is uh, state sponsored to a huge degree. Um, so the, our focus in the development of the airplane has been different, but I also think that there's a huge chance of making the airplanes more accessible, you know, working together with the communities that are out there like AOPA or EAA as a very good example, because we're talking with each other right now. And this whole club element of has been, has never been a thing as long as airplanes were cheap, but now airplanes have to be more ex um, more expensive to just meet the environment they live in. Maybe the, the regulatory side or litigious side. Um, all in all, this is the the budget you have to deal with, and then it starts to make sense to share an airplane. And an aerobatic airplane is a very good example of where sharing can actually really work. Because nobody usually takes it away for a week and goes to the Bahamas with it, which, by the way, is something we're about to do, but it's a different part of the story. But if you want to train um, competition, um, I used to, I started out with four other people owning an extra 300, uh, a single seat airplane. And uh, we basically trained each other, um, which was great. And we shared the hangar cost, we shared the, uh, the, the, uh, the insurance, uh, we shared the maintenance. And uh, that was. For me personally, it was, a, I think, still the best way to get into, um, let's say, higher class aerobatics more than intermediate, because I could have never afforded a plane like this on my own. But when you fly something that is, let's say, 30, 35,000 euros on your own or dollars, that's not going to take you to unlimited anymore. So that's, you know, in, in this context that, you know, EAA, Game Composites, whoever else might be out there to try to publish that sport, I think that would be a good way to facilitate um, shared ownership concepts or club concepts, uh, at least would be, in my opinion, would be worth talking about other than the guys who can afford it anyway, whatever they do with it. And, and Philip, what is the price point for purchasing a game bird? So right now it's $425,000 for the version that comes as you in the airplane that you and I flew together. So it's um, it's got a Garmin uh, G3X in it and uh, ADS-B in and out. You got through the FISB, you got weather on, on it. You got both seats in it for that money already, which is um, you know quite nice, I think. And the options that we offer are it would be difficult to spend more than 450 on the airplane. And uh, what what options are customizable for a customer purchasing a Gamebird? Paint mostly. Then you can have a second radio. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. It's not huge. I mean, we're not we're not offering biplane options or something. All right. Well, that uh, you know, obviously that that 
that price point is, uh, you know, is, is, well, let's face it, it's out of, out of reach of a lot of people, but you made a great point about shared ownerships and flying clubs and things like that. And it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly competitive when you look at the landscape of brand new airplanes, brand new airplanes, certified airplanes are expensive. Uh, and that's, that's certainly why, so, uh, you know, why the core of our organization is about, uh, is about affordable flying and, and why home building has been, has been at, at its heart for, uh, you know, for EAA since the very beginning. But, uh, but it's always exciting to see innovation. It's exciting to see, see great ideas and, and especially interesting to me when you said, uh, that, uh, maybe to paraphrase you just a little bit, Philip, that the game bird is really kind of a culmination of, uh, of the best of lots of other things that you've seen over the years and how they come together. But that, that combination of, uh, of range and endurance with the, the maneuverability and power is, is uh, certainly impressive. And obviously uh, you guys are not, uh, not having much trouble finding, finding customers when you're rolling, uh, rolling one out every, every three weeks and, and gearing up to do that uh, twice a month. That's remarkable. Yeah, it's been, uh quite the experience in the last few years here, I must admit. And, you know, back to your point about affordable flying. I mean, one thing that I learned is that uh, cheap airplanes are like cheap brain surgery. Um, you find out what's wrong after you should have found out. <laughs> and um, I appreciate everybody who makes that effort. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody is even somebody who makes kits is in the business because to be to make it a business. And to keep an aviation business has gone, you know, the bar has been raised over and over again because essentially the nature of regulatory bodies is to make every occurrence, transform every occurrence into a law. And that does, that keeps raising the bar every day. And, um, you know, you know, that times are changing and everything changes with it. And I think if, uh, you know, Curtis Pitts, for example, would be, would be designing an airplane today, then it wouldn't be for the same you know, price that it was in the 1960s or 70s, simply because he would need the same amount of overhead that we need and the same amount of engineering and certification and suppliers and everything. Just look at engine prices over the last 50 years, how they've, how they've gone up um, for the amount that a new you know, Pitts S2 was sold in the 70s. You can't even buy an engine anymore nowadays. So this is this is all this is all that stuff plus inflation etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a lot of things why if you com- if you just say if you just compare the numbers that doesn't complete the picture. Let's put it like this. And if you even if you look at an RV, you know they an RV is not the price of the tail kit by the time it's ready and done. Um, and the, uh, somebody has invested an, a certain amount of his of his life into this machine. Um, I would say quite an probably a significant amount of these builders could, you know, go to work at the same time and probably just buy an airplane off the line from us or from somebody comparable, and not actually lose any money by doing this. But that's not to discourage people building kit planes. Don't get me wrong; I started the same way, and it's a, it's great. That's one of the fantastic things in the U.S. that you can actually do this, and um, but. For people who don't have the time, don't want to put the work in, say I don't have the experience, I don't want cheap brain surgery. You know, we offer a turnkey solution. That's excellent. 
so Philip, is there anything uh, you can tell us uh, about what's next for game composites? Uh, reading between the lines, it sounds like you've got some big plans for the, the future, but I'll understand if there's nothing you're ready to share yet, but any, uh, any hints? No, not real hints. I mean, there will be a GB2, no question. Um, but for the for now, it's going to be more game birds. Um, that's the focus. And the whatever we, you know, I said that earlier on, we need to do the first step before the before the second. And um, we haven't completed the first step quite yet. So it is pretty exciting. We keep the ears to the ground and um, see what's out there. Um, there are ideas, of course, but right now everybody is really focused on the job at hand, which is doing what we're doing. And it is, yeah, a lot of fun most of the time. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's something we, you know, regardless in which direction the company is, is going to go, I have no intentions of ever giving that up. Um, aerobatics has been a focal point around in my life for the last 15 years, and it's been a lot of fun. Of course, there's, with fun comes frustration, but I'm... The good side, good sides by far outweigh the bad sides, and um, it's been. Yeah, I hope for for much more. Right now, the last this week we have Katsuhiko Tokunaga here from Japan, who is the world's most renowned air-to-air photographer, and we've done some exciting formation things. Hopefully, you're going to see them soon, and uh, yeah, more to come. And it's been fantastic so far, and no intentions of stopping. Oh, that's great. Uh, well, Philip, uh, we're just about uh, to the end of our time today, so I want to take a second again and, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, and uh, also, uh, big thanks to both you and, and Stuart for taking such good care of our team when they were down to visit uh, visit you in, in uh, Arkansas. Hopefully, uh, everybody out there listening has had a chance to read Christina's story in the, Christina, that's the March issue of Sport Aviation, correct? March 2021? Yes, that is the March 2021 issue. So we're always working on uh, working two months ahead, so I I always forget which month is which. But anyway. What day is it? I have no idea. <laughs> but but uh, with that, Philip, uh, thanks so much once again for joining us. We really appreciate your taking the time today. No, thanks for giving us the opportunity to show, talk about the game bird, talk about the company. Um, yeah, and if anybody wants to come and visit us, you know, we got, uh, we got tours on the website. We're always happy to share the airplane, share experiences, and Bentonville is a great place to be with a good, F a great FBO with a great restaurant in it. It's a, I think it's a good fuel stop in the heartland of the U.S., so, yeah, please visit us. Well, that's terrific. All right, well, thanks again, uh, Philip, and uh, thanks to our producer, Christina, for stepping uh not exactly away from the board, sort of bringing the board with her and then stepping behind the mic. <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, of course, uh, most of all to everyone out there who's listening. We really appreciate uh, all the support, all the feedback. Uh, you can comment on our podcasts by going to our blog, inspire.ea.org. Each episode has a page there with a comment engine associated with it. Also, uh, always grateful uh, for the reviews that we get uh, on iTunes and other platforms. Um, we do apologize to anyone out there, any iTunes listeners who uh, were missing a couple of episodes for a little while. Um, I will just say that it turned out that there was a PHP configuration problem that messed up our RSS feed, and uh, we found it and fixed it. So, uh, glad to have our iTunes listeners back. Uh, please keep those comments coming. You can always email us at feedback at EA.org. And uh, with that, uh, we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.